Hi, everyone, and welcome to Saxas to Practice, a practitioner skill building process for the field from two folks who don't know it all, but have and will continue to think a lot about it. Hi, everyone. My name is Maserat. I am an associate vice president at James Madison University. And I'm Kate Radford. I serve as the director for leadership education and development in the Center for Student Leadership and Engagement at Clemson University. So um, just to catch up a bit, in case you have missed our previous two seasons of To Practice or our first episode of the season we are in now, um, Miles and I used to work together at Clemson. Our office at the time was about half graduate students and throughout the years as colleagues, we reflected a lot on the training that we provided to our amazing grad students um, and came to a fairly obvious realization that we were the hosts for the practical experience for those students and bore a great deal of responsibility for helping to develop their practical skills. So this podcast is really born of that realization and of those conversations. Um, we've spent a lot of time thinking through the practical skills that we think are necessary to thrive in student affairs. And this podcast is to share those reflections, to continue to hone our skills as practitioners, and to give us a chance to sit down and stay in conversation with one another. We're doing that through a grouping of seasons, each based around a specific skill. And this season, we are talking about hiring. But before we talk about hiring, I've got some questions for Kate Radford, some pop culture, true or false questions. Um, so, Kate, the theme this time is the movie The Outsiders. Cool. I don't even know what that movie is. So this is a great start, as always. It's based on Essie Hinton's classic young adult novel um, from 1967. It was adapted in 1982. Sure, it was filmed before that by one Francis Ford Coppola. Mm. And The Outsiders is this cult classic film, but it's most especially known for being a absolutely notorious incubator of talent. So like so many actors and actresses that you know that sure. came up in the 1980s were in The Outsiders. But the question for you, Kate, is which one of these actors were actually in The Outsiders or not? Which it sounds like you're totally ready to answer. So I think we're in great shape. Totally ready. Totally ready. Can I can I get that recap? Because I know if I touch my computer right now, I know folks on the call won't be able to hear this, but you will be able to see if I look at, touch my computer. I don't want to I don't want to look anything up because you'll accuse me of cheating. Mm-hmm. Um. So but can you just remind me for what year was this movie again? So I can get an idea at least on ages maybe of some of these people. 1982. 82. OK. When I'm it ready. Came out. I can give you a brief plot summary. So it's a coming of age story about a uh, older brother who is raising his two younger brothers in Tulsa in the 1960s. Um, And uh, they have sort of hilarious names. So one character's name, it's a nickname, but uh, very notable. His name is Soda Pop. Um, I would say the the nominal lead of the story's name is Johnny Boy. Johnny Uh, Boy. Okay. Boy. Yeah. Or Pony Boy. Sorry. I think there's a different your name johnny pony boy mm-hmm. okay good yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so sounds I'm like very I, ready. yeah it seems like that context is really going to help you sort this out yeah mm-hmm. i think it right. will. are you ready yes okay first off when i ask this can you confirm whether you know who this person <laughs> is and then tell me whether you think they're in the movie okay yeah okay emilio estevez is emilio estevez in the outsiders Familiar with Emilio Estevez, um, familiar with the Estevez family broadly, um, right? It's two brothers and a dad that are all actors. Is that true? 
He's the only one that uses the the last name Estevez. Um, the others, uh, his brother is Charlie Sheen and their dad is Martin. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I thought, great too. Okay. Um, yeah, I think he could probably have been one of the, he could be one of the, the brothers being raised. That's the character I think he is. Mm. Well, so you think he's in the movie? That's what I'm hearing. I do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you're correct. Emilio Estevez is in The Outsiders. So you're one for one. Great start. This is really good. This is a good start. Okay. Are you you ready for the next one? Mm -hmm. Okay. Diane Lane. Do you know who Diane Lane is? Diane Lane. Um, I know the name. Uh, Diane Lane. I couldn't tell you anything she's in. I think I can picture her. She had like older now, older white woman, short blonde hair, short, like shoulder length blonde hair. You know, I think there, her hair is, is varied in length, um, was blonde for most of my understanding of her. The picture that I'm looking at on Wikipedia, she has brown hair. So, you know, I don't, I don't know for sure, but yes. Yeah. She's currently 57 years old. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to say she was not in this movie. So Diane is in the movie, only prominent, uh, only prominent female character, uh, love interest of one of the brothers. Yeah. Oh, her character's name is Cherry. So. Okay. Okay. There's that for you. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. No, I didn't have that one. One for two so far. You ready for the next one? Mm-hmm. Patrick Swayze. You know who Patrick Swayze is? I do know. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very. Nobody very... puts baby in a corner. Mm-hmm. Nobody. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say he is not. I feel like he was busy with other things. Mm. <laughs> he is in the movie. He plays the older brother. Yep. yep. Oh. Okay. He's doing the raising. Yep, he's doing the raising. Mm-hmm. Um, just for a quick point of clarification for the the listeners, I was confusing Diane Lane with Diane Keaton, different person. Oh yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I had to look up famous Dianes because I was like, that's not who I'm thinking of. I don't think is Diane Lane, like Diane Lane. Yeah, Diane Keaton is who I was thinking of. So anyway, just mm. so just so we're all on the same page of where my head is in this moment. Hmm. Okay. Great. Yeah. Uh-huh. This is going going well so far. This is right. going very well. All right. Are you ready for the last one? Yeah. Rob Lowe. Do you know who Rob Lowe is? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, there hasn't been, a, I, I'm cheating the system, but there's not been a, there's not been a not person in it so far. So I'm saying this one, is, this is your, this is the no, mm-hmm. not in this movie. Well, you fell for my trick. They're all in it. Oh my gosh! I thought I had sort of alluded to in uh, in the piece. So he plays Rob Lowe is Soda Pop, <sighs> mm-hmm. and to give you a sense of the scale of this, other people that were also in the movie. So we've got Emilio Estevez, Diane Lane, Patrick Swayze, Rob Lowe, C. Thomas Howell played Pony Boy, the lead. Uh, Ralph Macchio of Karate Kid fame was another one of their friends. Um, Matt Dillon, uh, who was sort of fallen from the spotlight, but was very famous in the 1990s, was in it. 
as was, get this, Tom Cruise. Oh my gosh, connection back to Tom Cruise movies. Yeah, I think he was a smaller character, it seems. And then, and I think this is the weirdest one, a somewhat famous like indie musician who has a truly wild voice, like one of the most distinctive voices ever, Tom Waits, was also in this movie. So wild stuff. And Sofia Coppola, who tended tends to be planted in uh, her father's movies. And she's very talented in her own regards, but has gotten some heat over the course of, uh, well, I'd say he's more gotten some heat over the course of his career for putting her most notably in Godfather 3. Anyway, yeah, so The Outsiders, wild movie, a lot of, lot of famous people. Is Is that like a... Let me let me uh, flex my pop culture knowledge here. Is that like a Tory Spelling sort of um like uh situation? Like where people think Tory Spelling is really should not be put in shows, films that her father created, right? Isn't she the one that was like in some things that maybe she didn't need to be? I think specifically 90210 is what you're thinking of for mm-hmm. Tory Spelling. Um mm-hmm. I think that there was a lot of criticism about Sofia Coppola being in Godfather 3. I can't really speak outside of that. But Sofia mm-hmm. Coppola is like a beloved director on her own right now. Marie Antoinette, personal favorite in my house, The Bling Ring, um, some other stuff that I'm sure I'm forgetting. But mm-hmm. yeah. So really not in the same same ballpark here. Okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah, got I it. think maybe at some point people thought it might be that way, but it definitely does not seem to have played out that way. I don't think she does much acting. I think mainly behind the camera is where she's, found a a good spot but yeah outsiders 1982 i gotcha you know i think at some point doing i'm giving you an idea here which then you won't be able to do because i will clearly study for it because that's my tendencies um but I think an interesting thing of this would have been to to talk about celebrity like families and whether they have famous mm-hmm. parents or like I just recently learned because he passed away that, that Jennifer Aniston's father was like an, a soap opera actor. I didn't know that. Hmm. I didn't yeah. I didn't know that either, but I do love that idea and I will do that. And the reason why I feel 100% confident in doing that is because I want everyone to know that just like your list, you will absolutely not study for this. So (laughs) you can plant that, but I know that you are not going to look that up. So yeah, long story short, one out of four this time is a tough topic. Um, But yeah, very tough topic. But thank you for that. A little pop culture knowledge for folks learning about a specific movie from 1982. Very timely. Very timely. Well, speaking of timely, I would um, like to to throw my question back to you. If you listen to the first episode in this series, this season, you will know that I am turning it around on Miles Surrett. And I am also going to ask him a question from, as he pointed out in the first episode, a very relevant uh, pop culture thing, which is pop punk music from the early 2000s. And whether... What I'm about to say to you is, in fact, a, a real song name from that era, or if I'm making it up. Are you ready, Miles? You know, I, I think my thought process will continue to be the same as it was last time. And yeah, I'm going to try to sort out whether you're being obscure or intentionally tricky. So let's let's see. Okay. Well, the, the song title I have for you today um, is Existentialism on Prom Night. Is that in fact, a real song or not. I mean, if it's not a real song, kudos, because that is just so 
of the era, the, you know, sort of esoteric, you know, grabbing also aligned with the deep in the feelings kind of, kind of thing. Deep in the Um, feelings. Yeah. You know, but because I am such a believer in you, I think that you could come up with something that good. Um, And I'm gonna, um, but you could have a running bit where this is just the name of all of them. And that's how you're doing this. So that, that could be hard to be sure, Miles, it's hard to be sure. That could be it. Um, I, I think I am, I think I'm going to say that I have more faith in your ability to come up with something that perfectly on brand than they themselves did. And so I'm going to say that that's not a real name and you made that up. It is a real name. I wish uh, I came up with it. I wish I had. But uh, the band Straylight Run, in fact, is who came up with it. It's really good. It's super sad. It's like it's not really super rock rocky, which really most pop punk, I think, early 2000s music is actually not really hardcore rock. Um, it's it's just pretty emo sad. Uh, but I love it. It's one of my favorite songs from that era. So go ahead and put it on your list, if you will, of what you plan to listen to on your next drive, next run. Maybe don't run. It's not particularly motivating. Um, but yeah, I'd like for you to listen to it. It's it's really good. In our our recurring bit here where I check how many monthly listeners this group has on Spotify, we're a little lower here. Straylight Run. Um down to 120,000 monthly listeners, really emphasizing the uh, pop culture part of this particular exercise. So. That's fair. That's fair. I will also argue that I don't think even in their peak, they were ever really quite high up there, you know, like with Brand New or Taking Back Sunday, as we talked about in the first episode. But solid, solid listen if, you, if you're looking for something, folks out there, recommend it highly. Well... Now that we've done that, um, super excited to now jump into our conversation here around hiring. So um, we really, I think, got you lined up to think about this season in our first episode. Um, our goal was to really sort of set the scene uh, and talk about where where are we? What is the the landscape of hiring in student affairs right now? Um, and this episode, we're going to jump into... Uh, that a little deeper. And I want to start um, with a phrase, Miles, that you used in our first episode. You talked about creating a a pro-candidate experience. That was a phrase you used, which I loved. Um, so you teased it last time. Help us to think a little bit more about that. What does a pro-candidate experience really look like? Well, I think I'll start by saying that I don't think anybody ever attempted to make people have a bad experience. So like, I don't, you know, I'm not saying that anybody was like, you know, creating an environment where people weren't, didn't have the opportunity to be successful. I don't think that that is how anybody operated. So I want to be clear, that's not the space. But I do think that there were certain ways where we, you know, I think we tried to, you know, create an experience that was comfortable and where people could be successful. And I think what I'm saying is I think we might need to take that a step further in a couple of capacities um as we go into this and i think a thing that kate and i are probably going to touch back on a few times is go further but then also make sure to be clear about the good stuff that you're already doing for folks um but some of that is like how we're communicating better about any of that you know any of that sort of stuff um and so a couple 
things that I would say would be aligned with what I would call like an explicitly and transparently pro candidate experience is the process is open instead of cagey. This isn't like we're trying to reduce access to the decision makers. And, and I think, again, all of this, I think, was really well-intentioned. I think a lot of it was equity-minded. It was we're trying to get bias out of the process, and we're trying to make this where it's going to be, you know, where it's going to be um, as as open as it could be um, and as fair as it could be um, and as just as it could be. I, I understand why f- folks were doing that, but I also think that some of that was done to minimize the amount of time that this process would take. I do think that there were time minimizing factors and trying to do things as um, efficiently as possible because of, I think, the focus. And, and this is the thing that I have seen where people are forget how important this is. Like if these jobs are as essential as we believe that they are, Mm-hmm. And getting good people into those roles is the most important thing that folks can be doing on a regular basis. And I think the sort of playing busy kind of thing distracts people. So it created, I think, a process where people felt like they had very limited information. And I think that we can create a, a process that is more open. Um, I think it's also about an honest reflection of what the job looks like. I think that folks could kind of be like, this is the PD, this is the job. We're going to put it out and people, you know, and people are going to be open to that. And I think we've got to ask some questions about like, are there things in this that are not good enough in terms of what people are seeking? You know, like, are we, um, you know, in orientation here, we had what I would call an over-concentration of meaningful student interaction. It was all sort of in this one job. And I think that that was too much for that job, but I think it also made other jobs in the space not as attractive as they could be. Um, and structurally, we were able to sort it out where we've been able to spread that out a little bit more. That's a thing that people are looking for. They want meaningful student interaction. And so um, you may need to change some things in order to get that to people and then be honest about what that what that job is. People, I think, can tell if you're being cagey and you're holding information back. And I think that's really scary. Uh, to candidates. And I think, honestly, it should be pretty scary. It's also not a vetting process anymore. It's not, here's this huge number. I I used to spend the majority of the time when I would run a search process on candidate review, like looking at the materials and getting through all this. And, you know, a, a blessing of this is that, you know, like, if you're waiting through 15 applications, it takes a lot less time than waiting through 50 or 80 applications. And so, um, but I think that thinking about, you've got to reallocate that time on the front end to try to get from what could be three, four, five applications to 10 to 15 um, to get a better, you know, to get a better chance of that. But you can't think about it as like, this is a vetting process. Um, But I think the main thing that I would say is that from the very beginning and how you communicate about this, think about every incentive you can offer this person and make that abundantly clear. So let me go through a ludicrous list of things that you can consider. And I do understand that in different places, some of these things are simply not possible. But in some places they are. So I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a peek behind the curtain of a Full, like a, and this is not comprehensive. I'm sure you know we could crowdsource this and get a better list. But here's some relocation costs. 
it's expensive to move. It's probably more expensive to move than it's ever been. And it's a challenge for people, particularly who may not have cash on hand related to, you know, a variety of economic reasons why folks may struggle to get to where you are if you can't figure out a way to make that more affordable. Another one, which I think folks are obviously aware of, but is something to really consider and to think through and to consider, you know, pretty radical restructuring ideas, perhaps to get you closer to it, which is in increasing the salary. You know, like I think that the standard, and I'm just saying this, we're probably creeping away from that like $40,000 threshold that has existed for a lot of jobs for a long time. And I suspect that you're going to see people getting closer to 45 or 50 and how to think through how to do that structurally is I think a, a, a big thing for folks to be thinking about. How about temporary or long-term housing? Um, you know, everybody knows that rent is high right now and certain, um, you know, I don't think that people would expect this, but there's very limited housing inventory in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And so it's a challenge for folks to relocate here. And so um, we, you know, are very open about trying to help people with that process. JMU is a, it, here in Harrisonburg is a significant landowner. We have, you know, rental properties that are managed here. Not everybody has access to that, but perhaps you do. And perhaps that's something, you know, perhaps that's something that you can think through. Um, and that makes a huge difference for folks. But some of that is also being upfront. We have this we have had this like, let me be as stingy as possible kind of mindset about this stuff. Um, and, and we do this reactively and putting these things up front in terms of what, what can be included, um, I think is really important. And that's one of them. Partner search support is another, you know, is another option as well. Um, a lot of people have those programs, but they're not like well articulated. They're not well explained. Um, there's obviously not a guarantee associated with any of that stuff, but it's really helpful as you're going through that process. And I, I know um, I remember one particular search um, that I think that person ended up not taking the job anyway, but our colleague at Clemson, uh, Kendra Stewart-Tillman, did a, an amazing job and I think really demonstrated the extent to which she was going through to try to get somebody there in terms of like actively working to get the partner connected immediately. Um, which I think is, you know, I think is within the bounds of a lot of these, a lot of these programs that exist. I think that people just are sort of used to more passively passing along information. So that's another option. How about communal onboarding? I'm going to talk about a different idea here in a little bit, but how do you bring folks together in community um, and make that experience better? If you've got really good tuition remission at your institution, advertise that and make sure folks are aware of that. Make your you know, make your doc program a selling point for folks, make your master's program a selling point, make your counseling program that you have on campus a selling point, make your educational technology degree a selling point. Let folks know that if you come to this institution and you want to retool or you're thinking about, um, you know, increasing your, you, you know, your educational capacity, that that's something that they're going to be able to do. And you put that side by side at places. There are a lot of schools that don't have that. So if you do, and again, that's maybe not something everybody can control, but if it's a if it's a benefit that you have, make sure that folks are aware of that. What does professional development support look like? I think particularly folks from minoritized uh, backgrounds, you know, going to a PWI as an example is a is a challenge. How can you make sure that folks are going to be able to get into community a couple of times a year, even if it's not on campus? Um, you know, can you develop retention programs to help, you know, like what benefits can you do to keep people and make people 
more excited about staying long-term. We are putting together an educational leave process at JMU um, to make it where, um, you know, we're doing a pilot next year, but we're going to have some folks be able to go out and do what is the equivalent of a sabbatical from a student affairs position at JMU. We hope that that's going to be beneficial in a bunch of ways. But we hope it's also going to be something that people, that really good employees look forward to and that makes their experience better. Um, and then the last two things that I'll mention, and again, I know that this is an absurd list, but at least hybrid work is an expectation for folks. That is like, I've seen the NACE data. I work with the Career Center here. Graduating students, 47 of them have an expectation, 47% of those folks have an expectation that they should be able to do hybrid work. We can have a discussion about how hybrid work works in student affairs and different modalities and how that can work in different spaces. But I'm just telling you that anecdotally and data-wise, I understand that that is something that people are looking for. There's a certain flexibility that comes from that. And I'm not saying fully remote positions, but I think a lot of people are looking for being able to work from home one or two days a week. Um, and I think if you don't have a system in place where you're able to, you know, where people are able to understand that clearly, um, you're going to be behind. And then the last thing that I'll say, and this is definitely like a bigger structural thing, and we have not gotten there yet here, um, but it's something we were working on is how do we recruit, how do we decrease um, what I would call like the junk in the work? And I think a lot of that has to do with email. So how do we create systems where we have different standards about what should be emailed and what shouldn't be emailed? How do we get people actually being able to be totally away when they're on vacation and not have what this book by Cal Newport called A World Without Email, which I would recommend to folks. What he refers to as communication debt that builds. So it is a terrible thing that when you come back from vacation, I think everybody feels stressed because you know that you've gotten, that work has piled up for you while you've been away. How can you actively, and vacation is a small part about this, but how can you actively make sure that no work is piling up while people are away, that that work is being diverted to other places and that other people can help with that while you're away so you can actually be there. But we can also change standards instead of, you know, emailing after work. What's the purpose of email? Um, this book is makes a very compelling argument about how to um, how to do that. And so anyway, long story short, those are some options about incentives that you can offer and then make those incentives abundantly clear to folks um, to create a all of those things are pro candidate. Every single one of those things is yep. making an environment where it's more attractive for folks to um, want to work at your institution. Yeah. Well, one amazing list. Thank you. Um, and yeah, I think I I think we we talked about in the first episode that there is a tendency to want to scapegoat money, right, as the reason for the landscape right now, or to say like, oh, we're just you know we just we just don't have enough money, and so we're stuck. We we can't pay people what they want to be paid. Um, and what you've just offered is is a list that goes far beyond the salary that we put on paper, right? So I I know. Um, sometimes to be frank, money is where we get trapped, right? Like we, we hit a cap, we, we have institutional, um, regulations, right. About what we can pay folks. There might be state issues uh, involved in that if you're at a public institution. Um, and so to be real, sometimes we do hit a point where, okay, there is no more money we can offer. Um, but I, th I think what you've just pointed out is, okay, so then, so what else, what else can we offer? What, el what else can we do there? Are the, the importance of benefits is like just so 
so, so, so I think understated at times, um, you know, there, there are things that are going to be not possible, but there, as you said, there are so many things that are possible. Um, and I, I think you're right. I think we have treated benefits in the past with either one of two ways. One, we've either, either been very stingy with them, right? So like, I'm only going to offer this if they ask for it, right? Like I, I can think about times where I've been in processes, particularly where it's like relocation costs, right? Like, yeah, that's available, but only if they ask, we don't just offer that up start offering it up. Like you have to be, as you, as you pointed out, abundantly clear about these things. And the other thing I think that we do is we put too much, um, onus on the candidate, right? Like, well, they can look that stuff up, right? Like for some of the things you mentioned, those are things that are publicly available, right? If your institution has tuition remission, that's probably somewhere in a benefits booklet, right? That's available on your website. Um, but don't assume that people are going to look at all those things or that they're going to find all of them. Even I think about our, you know, I think we have a pretty solid HR website here at Clemson. Um, nobody in HR come for me. Um, I think, but I think there's stuff that I'm like discover, I discover that I don't, that it isn't quickly, easily accessible that I'm noticing, even as someone who's worked here. And so if you're thinking about folks who are in a search process, um, are they going to read the entire like benefits manual for every job? Maybe not. If they're just in the early stages, I hope they will by the time they're offered a position, but um, they may not be doing that. They're they're most likely not doing that for every job that they're just looking at considering their interest in. Um, so be upfront about that. Don't assume like, oh, well, people can look that up if they're that interested. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, people shouldn't be surprised by benefits after they've accepted a job. Like, they, I mean, it's nice when that happens. You're like, oh, I didn't know that was a benefit we had. Cool. Um, but hopefully they're getting all that far before, before that. So well, and I think you have to assume, like, you have to assume this is a competitive process. Absolutely. Like, I'm operating on the assumption that candidates have a minimal amount of time to figure out what we're offering. And so we have to make that 100% clear. Yep. You know, like, I don't, I want candidates who are applying for jobs here to know more about what it's like to work here than it is other places. Mm-hmm. Um because I think that that's better for them in the short and the long term. But I also think it makes it where they're more likely, where they're more likely to work here. And I think that's, you know, I think that that's what we've got, you know, we've got to operate. And that's what I'm saying is like, this has to shift from a like, we are doing the work to the job search has always been built as this idea about candidates are the ones that are, you know, like, I think if you go back and look, we did we did a series when we were doing the first five years for graduate students and new professionals on the job search. And that was, um, we did that post pandemic, but before this hiring reality, it shifted in the way that it has. And if you go back and listen, the tone of that is the onus is on the job seeker. Like you will hear that. And that is where the traditional logic has operated in the field. And we've got to shift that around. Um, And again, everybody can make their own choice related to this, but like, the whole point is everybody is the whole point is that everybody is struggling with hiring and what i will speak for myself what i'm saying is like here's a way to think about it and here's a way to fix it and if you don't you're probably going to continue to struggle with hiring unless they, i mean and things could change which i talked about last time too so i mean things could shift um and you may regret doing that but i doubt you're going to regret trying to treat people better so Absolutely. Um, all right, Kate, any, anything that you would add in terms of pro candidate experience and how you're thinking about and defining that concept? You know, the only other thing I would say is, um, 
sort of big picture advice is treat treat the whole process like more of a conversation, right? I think to me, that's what pro-candidate looks like is that it feels accessible. It feels um, lower stakes, right? It's, it is higher. It's still high stakes. You're, you're talking about someone's employment. I know that that's never going to go away, but you know, I think as much as possible, treating it as a conversation between two entities, right? Between an institution or a department or a hiring manager that's hiring someone and the candidate and to, and to treat that candidate with, um, I think pro candidate looks like treating them like a human, right? And having conversations with them that don't feel to your language earlier, don't feel cagey. Um, I think we've always said that we've done that, right? Like I can think about being in um, search processes where we've said like, well, you know, they're interviewing us as much as we're interviewing them. But I don't know that we've ever actually believed that or that we've ever actually acted uh, that out to the fullest. Um, So I think really being about that, being about this is a conversation between two entities to figure out if this is a good fit, um, to recognize that Both people have things to, or both sides of that have things to offer, have needs in that, um, and to as much as possible to treat it more like a conversation. Um, You know, I I always give that advice to to grad students. Um, In fact, the the series you're talking about in the first five years, um, I did a a session for um, that series where I talked about salary negotiation. And a lot of what I talked about is some of the things you mentioned, Miles, about benefits and and how, you know, if you hit a point as a candidate that they've they've hit a max and you're really interested in that job, but it's just not going to work for salary wise. What else can you ask for? Right. And so to your point about we definitely emphasize like what else can you ask for? I think we need to flip the script on that and be offering it. But in that um, in that series in that episode where I talked about like trying to treat that conversation about negotiation and salary and and benefits as a conversation. Um, But that was candidate advice. I think candidate advice. Mm -hmm. I think it also needs to be on our end as the employer of treating it really as a conversation and to, um, to, to set the tone in that way. Uh, And again, I think that's something we've said, but it's not something we've always believed or acted on. What I most especially know is whether we thought that or not, candidates never did. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't, you know, I've I've interviewed for many jobs. I can't recall a lot of moments where I was like, oh, we're just having a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, that assumes that power doesn't exist. Yep. So, and power is going to continue to exist. You know, they may really want the job and we're the ones who make the decision at the end, but we also really want good candidates. And right now folks aren't getting the, quantity of candidate that they want so you know the power is going to be there um, but we've really got to believe that that is the case you know like we've got to believe that we're selling our jobs and selling our campus and being honest in that but we've got to think about you know we've got to think about that differently absolutely um so kate i think this is helpful i think you do a good job with this um can you tell me what are some ways that we can better communicate about jobs in the advertising process yeah I really feel like, you know, you talked about the shifting of the time. I don't know that, you know, that we're necessarily asked, not not necessarily um, advocating that the job search process or the hiring process should take a lot longer now in this current landscape than it did before. But I think the this part of the process, I think, is taking longer. And I think that that the benefit right now of, right, you mentioned not having as many candidates to weed through 
uh, is that we we can shift the time, the time we were spending on that. I think where you reallocate that time at this point in the current landscape that we are in is in the communication and the advertising of these roles. Um, you mentioned in the first episode, and I think this is spot on, that we have been so used to put on higher ed jobs and wait for people to come and then we'll start our process, right? Like I think about as I've hired uh it's like I have to initiate the process, but then I'm sort of just sitting back and waiting. Um, you cannot sit back and wait anymore. So I think, you know, we've got to be communicating. We've got to be sharing the role and being, you know, being ready to invest some time into talking to people um, and be ready to ask your people to talk to their people, right? That this we've got to leverage our network. We've got to be getting the word out, communicating um, about our roles, I think the other thing that we have got to start doing is to think more like a candidate and less like a hiring manager. So we've all been candidates. We know what that mindset is. Like put yourself back in those shoes and think about how were you finding out information? What were you looking for? What did you need? What enticed you, right? I, somehow it's like we we separate ourselves from that or we forget what it was like to be in those in those seats. So, you know, is your website up to date? Is it accurate? Is it is it accurately sharing highlights about your department or your role or your institution? Um, if it's not, you know, you've got to know the candidates are going to go there to look, right? I see a job. Oh, that looks like a cool position. Let me go look at that institution or that department. What am I finding when I do that? What's on the website? What's on my social media? Not necessarily personal social media, although I think that that's probably on the table, uh, but your departmental social media, right? What's there? How are you describing the job in the job title? Is the, is the job title interesting? Maybe from a state perspective or an institutional perspective, you have to have an official title, right? But how can you also communicate maybe a more internal title that you're utilizing for the position that is interesting and exciting to people? Um, you know, does your website and your social media, does it spotlight current employees? Are you sharing about who your people are that your candidates would be joining as colleagues, right? That's a huge part of the process is wanting to know who are going to be the people I work with and how are they appreciated in their work. So are you doing, you know, these are things that I think you can start doing. You've got to have built this up a little bit prior to posting a job, but thinking about how you're spotlighting people, um, how are you sharing with candidates information about the local area, right? Hopefully your HR department does a little bit of that. I know like on our Clemson site, there's, you know, a great little paragraph about what it's like to live in Clemson or in the area and what are the perks, right? We're, we're midway between Charlotte and Atlanta and, and sort of sharing some of those things, but how can you also do that with candidates? Um, I saw a great job posting pretty recently and I was trying to find it in preparation of, of today's recording and I couldn't find it again. But um, what I loved about it was someone, a hiring manager posting and said, okay, like, here's the link. Here's what you need to know for the, like, right. This is in the past. That's all we would have done. Here's the link to a job. Come join us at blah, 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 blah. Um, but they had this social media post about join us here. Here's what we're doing. Here's my, like, philosophy as a supervisor. Let me tell you about the culture, right? It was a lengthy post that was really giving people much more in-depth information than they would ever get from that position description. So they were sharing about who they were. And I I mean, I saw the post saying it was it's not a job in a function where I'm even interested in or a place and I'm not job searching, but I was like, man, I want to go work for that person. Like it was very well done. It was in a way that it felt like I was really getting a glimpse into 
um, what that place looked like. And it, and it was obvious to me that they were actively recruiting. It wasn't a passive, Hey, here's this job that's open. If you're interested, apply or, or the thing we all do, if you have questions, happy to answer them. Like, how can you be more proactive than that in, in your postings? Um, I think the other thing is, is thinking beyond like uh, position description language, right? We all have templates. We all have things that are probably required that we have to put in a position description. There's probably a format. Um, and yes, do that because you have to, to get it posted, but also thinking about as you're communicating in the, about the job, how can you be more creative? Um, and also maybe how can you be not overly lengthy? Sometimes position descriptions, you know, I get halfway through one and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm done reading um, if they've lost my interest. So how do you write a short, succinct overview of the job that's exciting to people that's not in PD language that looks different than that? Um, I think you know, I said this a second ago that we, the the tendency is to be passive and to say, I'm happy to answer questions if you have them, but how can you be more proactive in that? So can you offer like an info session about the role, right? Especially um, if maybe if you have multiple positions open, is there a way for you to share like, hey, we're going to we're going to do a Zoom session, right, about some of this role or, or record something that people can look at about information about the role that they can get more in-depth um, info on. I think that, you know, again, goes back to sort of just sharing the role and being ready to talk to people, um, being ready to, maybe that's one-on-one talking to folks, maybe that's info sessions, maybe that's something, um, some other sort of communication, but being ready to spend some time in this part of the process. Um, and then I think the last thing is is to share in your posting um, like a one-liner about like, why should people want to come here? Right. So in, I've seen some really well done again lately of like, it's an exciting time to join us at Clemson because we're in the process of blah, 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 right. Things that you wouldn't necessarily get from the website, from social media, because maybe there are things that only internally we know are about to happen. So how can you, um, kind of tease or preview the like future of what some what someone in this role would di- get to do or be a part of um that entices interest and don't wait till like oh well we'll show we'll talk about that in the interview process because you might not get people to the interview process if you haven't enticed them in the advertising process. Mm-hmm. Kate, I as I'm listening to you, what I'm hearing is that that's a lot of work. Yeah. It sure sounds like it. I'm just saying that that's what it that's what it sounds like to me. And I'm not trying to be glib, but I just, you know, like we've got like. I think, again, we're used to doing things one way. And I think we're used to sort of budgeting our time through the process one specific way. You know, like what I'm hearing is like there's multiple times that you're going to have to rewrite things to communicate externally with people about what this job is going to be. And that's hard to do like that. That takes time. Um, and I think that, you know, and I think that the the challenge is, is that there's no guarantee in doing that, that it's going to work. Um, but I think the where I sit with this is that I think that you have to know that you've done everything that you possibly could have. Um, and um, and I, I'm not there yet. And I'm not saying that, uh, you know, we're, you know, we're struggling with the same things as everybody, you know, like um, I'm not there yet. Other people probably aren't there yet either, but I think you gotta, you know, you gotta keep turning things over and you gotta think about it um 
you know, you've got to think about it differently in terms of how you're communicating. So. Well, I think it's part of it is like giving your best stuff from the beginning, right? I think sometimes we're we're better about this when we fail to search, right? Like, oh, we did this and, and we didn't get good people. And now it's like, okay, oh, what do we got to do differently this time? Like, do that from the beginning, right? Like that's that's a loss of effort, time from a lot of people, people that are part of processes, candidates, campus partners. Like if you get to a point in the process where you don't have the pool that you were hoping for and you spend the time doing interviews on campus, right? Like you've wasted a lot of people's time to then at the end of that, be like, well, that wasn't what we wanted. So now let's put some effort into recruiting people. Like do that from the front end. Um, Give it your best stuff from the outset, not as a reactionary, like, well, we didn't get what we wanted. So now let's think differently. I think this is, this is our call to say, do that from the beginning. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I I think that that's, I think that's definitely right. Don't, don't scramble into better. Just do better from the get-go. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think you're right. It is a lot of work. It's a lot of time, but it's also not on, it doesn't have to be on one individual. I think we can think about how do you, you know, I think we're approaching this from like a hiring manager has to do these things, but how do you use your, your current team um, to also do some of this work to recruit, to help you with getting the word out to meeting with people, right? Sometimes folks who are um, not the hiring manager are able to assist in that way and are often better um, at talking about what it might be like to be in that type of role or to, to be in the position that you're recruiting for. So thinking about um, how you get other people involved, I think is may alleviate some of that issue of time, but also might make your case stronger. So. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. So Miles, um, let's wrap here. What are some ways or some ideas that you have to implement uh, to improve the recruiting process right now? Well, I can tell you about one thing that we've done here that, um, you know, I, is you know there's there's reasons why this may not work in different places but i think is a, an example of sort of lifting together for something for something different so last spring we ran our first cohort hire in student affairs at jmu um and if you want more details about this we're about to do two parts of this on our partner podcast essay today um one with the group that's administered that sort of the planning group and then one with the folks that were actually hired into the cohort. Um, so for those of you who like aren't familiar, cohort is a, a I, I'd say a fairly novel but not unestablished academic affairs hiring process where faculty members are brought in together. And it's a collective application and then onboarding process. So in the spring of 2022, we hired nine people at JMU through one cohort process. Um, some really good things. We had many candidates who were considered for multiple positions which meant that we were emphasizing getting good people into jobs and not necessarily this like, oh, this person would be really good, but the boat has sailed. We were able to think about it through an interdependent systemic kind of way. Um, And it was, you know, there was so much collaboration and connectivity. It was not competing or overly bureaucratic things or, you know, making it where our hands were tied. Um, we We definitely had more flexibility in terms of how we could you know, get get the best people in, onto campus. Um, so just like a quick rundown of some results, we had more applications through that process than we've seen through anything else that we've been doing. Um, we uh, retained internal talent. There were multiple graduate students at JMU who um, were more interested in staying because of this. 90% of the jobs that we posted ended up being filled and we had one position actually 
that we ended up getting vacancies in that same area as we were running the process. And we were able to fill three jobs through one posting based on the depth of the candidate pool. Um, it was a better onboarding experience. Um, our, as you'll probably hear from the folks and don't take my word for it, listen to the podcast that um, Michelle is going to do on SA Today with those folks, but it's a better onboarding experience. Folks came in in community. Um, and then this is, you know, not an insignificant point, but um, the cost to run each one of these searches was about 40% of what a normal search costs by collectively pooling, particularly from the posting, but then also from the travel, instead of, you know, two different departments paying to bring somebody to campus, we had collective interviewing processes and they only came once. Um, but the postings were, you know, were less, you know, it's, I think a lot of folks are throwing a ton of money at job boards right now, hoping that that's going to sort it out. And we were able to reduce that cost significantly. So you can take that and then reinvest that in the candidates. You can, you know, some of the stuff that we're talking about, you can then turn around. I would much rather put money, you know, I would much rather put money back into a candidate and their professional development than, you know, paying to repost and posting mm -hmm. more and in different places, hoping for a, a different result. So, you know, there's complications with it. And I think we're getting, you know, we're getting better at what this process will look like. Um, but it, we did it with candidates in mind from the very beginning. And it was, it was a big, it was a big lift to get that started. But um, I think, I think it's fair. I mean, I talked to our, our broader leadership team of about 60 people yesterday um, about, you know, this process and there was unsolicited support that came, you know, that came up um, through the room. And so um, I think that the the proof of concept exists now, at least for us here. So um, it's been a, been a good, been a good thing and something for folks to, folks to consider looking at and definitely, you know, see if there's a template from academic affairs on your campus that can really help mm -hmm. create that, you know, create what that process can look like with HR. I love that. Yeah. That it's been fun to hear from you um, about that process and and I think from initial idea to what you've discussed here, like proof of concept that it for sure has come to fruition in a really cool way on your campus. And I hope more campuses will think about that. I think um, what you're describing also sounds to me like I, I think, you know, from that pro candidate sort of perspective, I, that sounds just so much more open uh, so much, um, so much more simplified. And I think that that we can't undervalue like simplifying things for folks to apply. Right. So, um, the idea that I can apply and be considered for multiple positions or that I can, um, you know, I don't have to duplicate my efforts as a job seeker, uh, is, is huge. And I, I think that we, we might underestimate the impact of that, um, but we shouldn't. So kudos to y'all, Jamie, for that work. Well, and if you're a candidate, you know, you can, you can be considered for multiple jobs. You only have to do one application. Which is the worst part, right? I mean, no one enjoy, I don't think, I mean, maybe if you're out there and you love applying for jobs, let me know. But, you know, I, you know, when I've been a part of processes, that's, that's the, the worst part is like writing the cover letter. And I mean, the amount of, you think about again, time-wise, the amount of time it goes into a candidate submitting a good application. Um, if you're writing cover letter, editing your resume, right? All that process, that's the time consuming part. I think people enjoy the, typically the interview process and getting to that point, it's a chance to talk with someone, to be in conversation and to share and find out if it's a good fit. But 
that just sort of throwing out, here's who I am on paper is, is often really challenging and time consuming. And, and is the part that I think once we get past that, typically people are open to the rest of the process. It's, it's the hurdle of getting them to submit that application to spend the time doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, that is, I, I don't know, there may be some folks out there, some weirdos who really like writing cover letters, you know, and I say that as somebody who works for the Griff Center here. Um, lovingly, lovingly calling you weirdos. Lovingly. But what I know, nobody likes filling out the online job application. Nobody, nobody enjoys that. You know, I don't think anybody's like, oh, I get to put in my address again. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, it, it at least reduces that stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, let's wrap with a, a resource as we always try to do um, to share with y'all about how you might think about this topic a little bit more, this particular um, subtopic a little bit more. The the resource I came prepared to share about um, is a, a report, actually, that I sort of stumbled across in doing some research about this topic. Um, it was produced by Gallup. And so Gallup, produces a report, I think annually, um, they, two reports, one, well, they're, you know, they produce a lot of reports, but two on this topic. One is the state of the globe, I think is how they refer to it, say the globe workplace report. So it's talking sort of for those of us who might be willing to search uh, internationally, I guess that that report would be helpful. Um, but they also produce a state of the American workplace report. Um, it's a free resource. You do have to request it. So it's not just on their website, but you have to guess, share some personal information in order to, to be able to receive it, which I don't know what the follow-up with that looks like. You may get bombarded with ads and I apologize if that happens, but um, it is a free resource. Um, and they describe it as um, in-depth analytics that help leaders optimize their attraction, retention, engagement, and performance strategies during a time of extraordinary change. So um, it's super data heavy, but very cool analytics to help you think about a lot of the things that we've talked about today, about how you particularly um, attract great talent in order um, to fill vacancies during this time. So I hope that that resource might be helpful for y'all. How about you, Miles? Yeah, I think I that that sounds great. Mine is a little bit less uh, tangible, um, but I went to a Saxon presentation last week. Um, Saxon annual conference, although I'm perhaps uh, dating the recording of this. Oops, uh, I went to a Saxon presentation, uh, you know, sometime in the recent past, and um, that was on the student affairs job search. And our colleague uh, Michelle Botcher facilitated that. Uh, with three recent graduates of the student affairs program at Clemson, Victoria Goetzinger, uh, Christopher Spellman, and Gabby Morgan. And it was super, super insightful. Um, so I'm sure that they would be happy to share, you know, happy to share slides. Um, but it was definitely a peak and a better understanding exactly as as Kate mentioned of what candidates are actually looking for and what they're and what they're seeking. So um yeah so with that in mind thanks for joining us for to practice presented by saxa you can get more information about saxa the southern association for college student affairs on our various social media outlets including facebook.com backslash saxa fan page on twitter at saxa tweets and on instagram at saxagrams we also recommend signing up for the sax alert kate anything you want to add i don't think so thanks for listening all right thanks everybody